This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Raven Dana. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Raven, let's talk about the evolution of witchcraft. Is witchcraft evolving, and does that evolution offer strategies or resources for dealing with non-human entities? Is there a conventional or traditional witchcraft, and then also a newer developing vein? You seem to have an integrated cosmology where all of these disciplines work in concert. I wonder if you feel that's the case for you as an individual and more generally for the collective. Does witchcraft have something particular to tell us about these non-human entities? I know that that's a mouthful, but does that make sense? I, no, I'm with you. And, and first of all, let me speak to my, about um, my path as a witch. I always... I was raised, you know, the neighborhood, the school was Catholic. There was no requirement in our family to um, be a Catholic. And so even though I went through all of the traditional Catholic sort of stuff, from a very, very early age, I always felt that I was a pagan, that I was in fact a witch. That I can remember having, you know, they were collecting money for the pagan babies and I was wondering why I couldn't take that money home, right? It was, it was that, but it's true. <laughs> And I think it comes from my uh, family's deep connections with nature, my grandfather's love of nature, my grandmother's, um, she would do things to keep the storms from, you know, from lightnings to strike the building. There was like this, um, this conscious and deliberate uh, interaction with natural forces is where I originally felt myself resonate with the path of paganism, witchcraft, nature. And so again, as I got older, and I um, actually more embraced studying, I very quickly realized that like all systems with beliefs, some of the, the standard, stereotypical, traditional um, beliefs of witchcraft, especially modern witch, witchcraft, um, pretty limiting in terms of the experiences that I and others like me have had. So I would say that rather than being a newer version of a witch, I think I'm more the ancestral older version of a witch mm. that, re that I have very, um, I have relationships with the powers I have, I know that they're conscious. I have experiences with the ancestors. I know that they're there. This is not a belief system for me. This is experiential. Mm -hmm. I can interact with these forces, and so can you, by the way. So I think that, uh, and this is our ability in life, and I think that's where, if modern witchcraft is moving in a direction, it's moving, I think, to the embrace of the old, most ancient realizations that we are part of these natural forces and do always have uh, interrelationships with entities and energies that only when we're still and quiet can move through us and can work through us and can speak through us. And I do think in that way, yes, that witchcraft is evolving in the direction of more open arms toward the entities and experiences that are in the between worlds, that there's much more, 
I think, realization and study and inquiry rather than just the same old routine, the same old formula, the same old spells, the same old story, because then it's really no different from any standard religion out there. And so, yes, my experience with modern, like very new witches is that they've cast off a lot of that old stuff and are going back to the really old stuff where there's a relationship with the entities, a relationship with the old powers. And so I find that very, I find that thrilling. I find that that is exactly where we need to be. And that by definition, my definition, you know, that a witch is anyone who can stand between the worlds and help the energy move from one plane to another. Mm. Right. So I think that, you know, we, especially the women these days are finding or reclaiming their power as, as witches. And there's a, a big surge right now um, in uh, an upswing in paganism and witchcraft. And I believe that the times call for it, that we have to remember that we're connected in order to make the changes we want to see happen in the world. It underlines the atrophy of our sensitivities to consciousness, the presence that pervades all life. I love your characterization of it going back to the old, old ways. Intimate contact with that intelligence and all its manifestations. If there is a return to that primordial intimacy, it begins to inform the visitors and our relationship to them. In that sense, does witchcraft have insight as to contact, abduction, hybridization, and what exactly is going on with the big picture of all of those programs? I think that there are still too many unknowns there and not enough actual experience. The problem that we have is that we so quickly begin to categorize and make meaning and try to analyze our way to some end game rather than have the experience and see how that experience impacts, changes, and informs us. So I think that that's where we're at in this conversation, is that there needs to be more of us having the experiences that are, that are left unlabeled and that are still open to interpretation until we have enough body, enough of a body of experiencers that aren't trying to solve a problem, but are trying to understand what's happening. And we're not there yet. I want to ask a simple question, but I feel it's a fascinating one. Is it hard to be a witch in Ohio? Has the culture caught up or evolved beyond our old facile taboos around this? Is that an outdated notion? What's it like? Well, um, it's, it's a little of both and. I mean, there, there are certainly people who, uh, who would run away. There are certainly people who would tell me I'm going to go to hell. There are, but, but, you know, by and large, I'm very open about, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll just wear a shirt that says basic witch, you know, and I call it truth in advertising. So, um, by and large, I find that people are curious, they're interested, sometimes they're afraid, some, but, um, you know, whether or not I put the label witch on there, I, I am who I am, and people have always been a little standoffish when it comes to being around anybody who might know things that they don't want you to know. So without even the witch 
label involved, I can't really differentiate between that and just the way I'm wired. So, but yes, I would think that um, for other people that I know, the answer is, sure, it's still, it's a challenge to be a witch openly without finding yourself in the position where you have the urge to defend yourself or explain yourself, which, by the way, I don't do, ever. If I'm not asked a direct question about something and somebody has their misconceptions about what I am, that's okay. It's, you know, what, like what they're thinking is none of my business, you know, unless there's something going on that I need to address. So yeah. it doesn't, uh, frankly, it doesn't bother me. Uh, and, you know, the people who find themselves skirting around me because they think I'm dangerous, it's like, okay, well, I can't fix that. And if you ever want to talk to me, I'm sitting right here. Yeah. So I, I would say that, you know, there are probably people who would find it, who do find it challenging and a little upsetting, and I don't. It, that, none of that bothers me. I can hear it in your voice. It carries the signal of that authenticity, which, speaking of signals, let's segue to the art of handwriting. Handwriting as an indicator of our inner state. I don't know if you'd go so far to call it a mode of divination, but I know you're an expert in the art of handwriting, and you're the first one that I've ever met, actually. So how did you come to have this skill? Tell us how a person's state manifests in their handwriting. And then also, is this a lost art? We write so much less than we used to. What is the current state of this art? Well, first of all, um, handwriting analysis is really... I wouldn't say that it's divination per se, as much as it is more a clinical science like psychology is. There are actual rules that the unconscious mind displays in your handwriting because your handwriting is not a conscious thing. You learn the letters and then your brain does the work. It's brain writing. So your handwriting is a snapshot of the moment uh, in, in which you're writing of your mental, emotional, and physical state. So yes, handwriting can very clearly show what you're thinking, how you're feeling, and what your physical condition is at that moment in time. So I came upon it because I was reading something. I'm, I'm a, I study something all the time. I keep my mind going. So I had just finished a number of um, studies in, uh, body language and microfacial uh, expression training. I had just finished that and came upon this. Somebody had written me a letter and I'm looking at this letter and I'm thinking, there's a lot of information in here. I would like to know if what I'm seeing can be mined deliberately. Now, I could always look at handwriting and tell some things. I just didn't know how I knew what I knew. So I started studying handwriting analysis for that reason to see if I could discover more about how I knew what I knew, and then I could get better at it. And that's ultimately what I did. So I studied with um, a man by the name of Bart Baggett and, Bar and his father, Bart and Curtis Baggett, who are internationally known for their skills at not just handwriting analysis, but also for the court system, grapho analysis, which is a little different. And yes, um, it is completely accurate to say that you can tell over a hundred so different traits by looking at the handwriting. I can also tell you that if you looked at somebody's handwriting, 
you could probably tell a half dozen of them just by looking at the writing. Is the writing big? Is it small? Is the pressure heavy? Is it light? Are the loops large? Are they small? And a lot of it is if you look at the handwriting and just get the gestalt of that writing, how does this writing resonate in your body? How do you feel when you look at that writing? That's a big piece of the puzzle right there. So I think the lost skill or the lost art is entrusting ourselves to know what we know. Entrusting ourselves to pay attention when our body gives us a signal that maybe mentally we can't figure out how we know that thing, but we know that thing. We can look at handwriting and something tells us, do not trust this person. And yet they have all these credentials and we say, oh yeah, we'll hire them anyway. And it's a mistake. So yeah, it's true. Yes, it, it is a skill. I did study it for a number of years, and it's, it is fascinating. I love handwriting analysis, especially signature analysis, because it takes who you are as a person and compresses it into these little words and squiggles and puts it there on the page for the world to see. So, yes, it's fascinating, and it's very, very informative. It's very telling, and it's not that difficult to learn if you if you're you know if you really want to learn it there's some really good systems out there and it doesn't depend um, heavily on being intuitive it depend it, you, the more intuitive you are the easier it is i'll say that but it depends on you learning how to actually look at that handwriting and see what it's telling you by the swirls and the scoops. So yeah, if somebody's printing instead of writing, makes it harder. That's why yeah. I study lots of different modalities because if somebody's not writing, I can look at their body language or their facial expressions and tell things. And if I can't see them, I can tell by the tone of, I have said to people that I'm coaching with, stop slumping, sit up straight. And they say, how can you possibly know? I don't know, I can hear it in your voice, something changed. So, you know, the more intuitive you are, the more the systems like handwriting analysis or um, you know, any of them, whether it's body language or voice recognition, the systems become interchangeable. Same like divination. If you're good at reading tarot cards, you can do palm reading. You can throw stones. You can listen to the leaves of the oak tree. Those systems become open to each other. Does that make sense to you? Completely. It's the capacity itself which can be pointed in any direction. One place we might point such capacities, and I know you have, is remote viewing. For any listeners new to the technique of remote viewing, what is it? Well, remote viewing is a skill that is learned so that one can get their mind quiet enough to literally view at a remote location what's going on and it's something that the government taught people to do there was an actual government program through which people were trained to a very high level of remote viewing in fact if you want to read a great book uh, the seventh sense by Lynn Buchanan is a great book that talks all about that and his experiences in the government so they were able to train these people with such, to such exquisite detail that they were able to bring back intelligence about different remote locations. So when you do remote viewing, you don't know what you're going to view. You're not given any information whatsoever. It's always double blind. So there's a person that knows what you're doing 
there's a person that gives you the instruction to go to the target and then you as the remote viewer that writes down and assesses the what you see or find or feel or hear at that target so it's a process that you're trained in to get your conscious thinking mind out of the way so that your deep mind can actually connect to the location and provide information it's fascinating and I took remote viewing because I imagined it would further develop and hone my skill at um, being at generally being intuitive and it has and so I went to Canada and I took uh, level one remote viewing with Lynn Buchanan and um, his right-hand person at the time whose name is Colleen um, and she she is actually still training people in remote viewing so it, it is a skill to actually walk between the worlds consciously is, is basically what it is the thing the thing about remote viewing though is that to be a good remote viewer you have to let go of knowing whether or not you hit the target because if you're doing it for somebody else you're not going to know can you share some of your experiences as a remote viewer the highs and the lows well, what's it like to cultivate that skill well the skill is uh, occurs through a series of practices where you first get in touch with how your own unconscious mind translates signals to your conscious mind so when you first start practicing you you discover by putting your pen on paper these squiggles a line they call it you know you draw this squiggly line and then you put your pen along the line and that tells you you know you you just touch the line and your unconscious will give you a feeling or a color or are there people there so with practice you learn that this movement or this squiggle means there are people at the target this means it's an open space this means there's water this means there's natural resources this means there's buildings so it's very detailed and complex and fascinating and again some people get to a certain point and then they like they don't want to do it anymore but what i say is that the the more you know about how your deep mind speaks to you the more accurate you are in getting the information to your conscious awareness right so for example i watched lynn buchanan do this fascinating this one he you know he did it up on the blackboard so we were shown um a photo lynn was told to go to the target we eventually were shown the photograph of where he was but he was writing down on the board his the words that he got he was writing down water person blue shadow diver fish and then he stopped and then he wrote down large and at that point we were shown a picture of a diver standing at like at the bottom of the water with this enormous fish just pointed down looking at him right so this is how clearly you can see this is how accurate you can be now did he know that's what it was he did not but he got all those components very accurately and then and then of course because it was a class then he was shown the picture as well at the end the challenge as a remote viewer is that if you're actually viewing for somebody for you to be good as a viewer you have to let go of trying to know what it is you have to be content with all those 
pieces of the picture and adjectives that your mind, that your deep consciousness gives you. And that's the struggle. The struggle is if you see, if you feel fur and see the color brown, you don't want to say it's a dog because that's your mind getting in the way. And this is the same problem we have when we're being intuitive. That if we get a little bit of something, the mind wants to jump ahead and say, this is what it is. Well, maybe it's not a dog. Maybe it's a, a bearskin rug lying in front of a fireplace, right? We don't know what it is. Mm. So, so the, issue, the issue that we have in learning remote viewing is the same issue that we have in correctly decoding our intuitive impulse, our intuitive messages that we get from around us. In the remote viewing arena, I want to ask you a bit about Eric Wargo's work. Eric Wargo, among so much else, is the author of Time Loops. He's also a guest on this podcast in an upcoming episode. I had sent you an article by him in which he posits that all successful remote viewing is actually misidentified precognition. He asserts that anytime someone like a Pat Price had success, it was precognition. The viewer in this scenario is actually retro-causally reacting to their own future success, if that makes sense. So because time is not a one-way arrow, the past, the present, and the future are all in a dynamic dialogue. What are your feelings on this idea? And does it accord with your own experience as a remote viewer? I think it is... Um, hmm. So if, if his version is, let me see if I have this straight. If successful remote viewing is mistaken precognitive, yeah, then unsuccessful remote viewing is, is what? Is it just a bad viewer or someone who's uh, at a different place on the timeline? I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that. So yes, I would agree that Time is relative. Time is not real. Time is circular rather than linear. That's all true. It works in both ways. But it also doesn't explain a remote viewer that can go into the distant past and find something because it's not precog unless, I mean, unless again, he's talking about, well, time can work, work in both directions. Yeah, I think it's a very simple, simplified explanation. I think that it's, I would say it this way, that good remote viewing is the ability to move one's consciousness through time and space to the target in real time. It means in the expanded moment, in the expanded now. Because otherwise, you're trying to talk about circular time or nonlinear space as linear, and that doesn't work, right? Like it doesn't work to talk about the nonlinear and linear terms because you're then it's you're limiting it. So to me, when I say the unconscious or the deep mind, I'm saying everything, everywhere, all at once. We have conscious minds because we could not function if we were holding all the awareness of all the frequencies all at once. We couldn't walk across the street and chew gum. But that doesn't mean we don't have access to all time and space. It just means we have forgotten how to have that access. And remote viewing is one tool to help us do that. It's not the only tool, but it is one. Let's shift to your work as a dream teacher. Waking, dreaming, lucid dreaming, deep dreamless sleep, each of these natural states plays a role in contact with non-human entities. 
People have waking experiences with grays, for instance, that are concrete, objective. We have liminal, non-ordinary events where people float through walls. We have grays show up in lucid dreams, astral travel. It seems they have an ease to access to all of this that we do not. As a dream teacher, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to those concerns. Well, the dream space, um, or, you know, kairos, kairos, nonlinear time, the between space is very, very rich territory. And we do actually travel through that space. We are able to and often do access not, other, not only other dimensions and other beings, but our deep past, our ancestral past, uh, the future. It's so when I work with people and their dreams, instead of doing what typically people would call dream interpretation, we don't do that. We uncover the layers of the dream that might have meaning and value in, in a completely different way. So yes, people can and do have experiences that are very real with visitors and non other types of non-physical entities in the dream space because it's more readily available at that, we'll call it that channel, that frequency. So I will often work with people, for example, to experience and meet with uh, not only a dead relative, but I have worked with people who had friends or relatives in a suspended state where they were unconscious, where they were dying, where they were in an induced coma that had very um, real, very valuable conversations with information that they were able to bring back and later validate and verify. So I want to say that these states are not, when we talk about dream states, we're not talking about um, you know, just dreaming about the party I was at last night. We're talking about using a, a particular state of consciousness to communicate and to access uh, other human beings and, and also, of course, non-human beings. So I have had for many, many years dreams of a place that I eventually came to call the Transition Hotel. And it is a structure in my dream space where I meet with the dead, where the dead arrive when they're first crossed over, where there are classrooms and training sessions where different kinds of visitors and non-physical entities can appear in different parts of this location. So there, people generally will create a structure that serves the purpose of being a stable location in a non-local space in order to have the experiences that they have make sense enough to their conscious minds that they can bring it back. And so that's some of what I help people work on is like creating and developing a stable, regular dream space location in which to have meetings with your ancestors, commune with the dead, speak to that entity that you thought showed up in your bedroom the other night so that you're there and you're conscious but you're more able to bring it back in a way that doesn't, that, that makes sense, that allows the information to flow, and it's less threatening. This might be speculation, but I'd love to get your read on it. We experience waking, dreaming, deep, dreamless sleep as compartmentalized. When you feel into, for instance, a gray's experience or a tall white, do these entities dream? Is their consciousness ordered similar to ours? 
Or are they experiencing these various states as continuous or coherent, one whole? Is their consciousness configured differently than ours? That's a good question. And I would say that, that yes, that's probably the case. Although where we go when we experience a dream is where they actually live the way we live here in this conscious moment. And I think that when they come through, when they break through to us and show up when we are conscious, is more for them like what we experience when we dream, that it's an effort, that they have to leave the stability of their typical framework of experience and enter into a different frequency or channel. So I do think that's true. And I think that our waking reality, when they enter into it, is more like their, what we would consider to be a dream. So interesting. It calls to mind the question about how we grow and how various realms may grow. It's easy for us when we reflect on our lives, for instance, to see how we change as human beings from the age of 5 to 10, from 10 to 20, and so on forward through our life. We develop. Our cultures develop. So does the death realm evolve? Does it develop? The in-between lives realms, does that evolve? Does the dream world evolve? When a practitioner such as yourself employs methods that are explicitly engineered to increase our facility in these subtle etheric realms, is that driving an evolution in those other non-ordinary, non-physical realms? Can you speak a bit about whether there is or is not evolution in that regard? It's a hard question to answer because I would have to say yes and no. I would have to say in those realms, uh, what we think and feel uh, has greater weight. In other words, it manifests more quickly, more readily, more easily. And yet at the same time, I think that that frequency or those realms is, um, gosh, how can I say this? I think it's the intermediate zone out of which the world that we know to be our conscious world rises. I think that there's a world, a deeper realm beyond that of less structured consciousness. And then there's that realm that we consider the realm of the dead, where the dead live. And, and I think that that world does shift and evolve. However, I think that at a certain point in evolution, that, that ex those experiences break through into what we call ordinary reality. So I think that there's a different mechanism occurring than what we would call evolution in our waking state. I think that evolution in the between worlds has more to do with solidifying concepts and ideas that then break through into our reality or our waking reality. Does that make sense? It does. Tell me if this is a fair characterization of what you just shared. Would that be some form of symbiotic dynamic development between those? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And I, so I think that the more, if we want to call it an evolution, the more we allow and accept and welcome that breakthrough to occur, the more it can occur, the more it will occur, and the more comfortable we become with the flow of information and energy passing between the two uh, realms of consciousness. Again, like growing up in my family, it could be true for all of us 
that the extraordinary becomes ordinary and that the supernatural becomes natural in our thinking the more that evolution uh, occurs. When you imagine and project into, let's just call it the deep future, might there come a time when the membrane between realms softens or even dissolves so that our ordinary expands to include the non-ordinary? So it would no longer be exotic, but simply an innate part of our normal functioning as it, for instance, appears to be for the greys already. Well, I, and again, I, I would have to say that depends on what future possibility we're looking at, <laughs> because certainly there can be a future possibility in which we go the other way and lock it down. But I can certainly see, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be, frankly, it doesn't have to be all that distant. It's a domino effect. Once a certain number of people come to a greater level of acceptance, awareness, and flowing back and forth between the two realms, then yes, the thinner the membrane becomes. I don't think it will ever completely dissolve for the purpose that the realities are separate for a reason that we probably, with our limited minds, can't fully grasp. Because there's a way in which the flow has to, be, has to work, right? Like the dead... Mm -hmm. The dead and the the dead um, are going to then move on from that realm to yet another realm. They're not going to stay there, so we're not going to have the realms blend together fully. But to be but to pass back and forth between them, like getting on a train and getting off and being fully present in the other realm, I certainly think that's possible. And I think that to a large extent, there are people who can do that now, who can do it in their dreaming and who can do it in their meditative states. And to be able to call that forth in our waking states, to have more people call that forth in our waking states, is what would bring us to that precipice of transformation. And yes, I totally can envision a future where humanity, as we know it, embraces the flow of energy between the worlds and the beings and the dead. And um, yeah, I, I can see that that's a definite possibility. And it would what it would take is us losing our drive for understanding and knowing and assessing and embracing, opening and experiencing and wondering and connecting. It's almost like we're planting little transrational trees, trying to grow a transrational forest one day that will transfigure the whole consciousness ecosystem, easing our conveyance from here to there and there to here, softening that duality. Yes, we're, I, I think, you know, we're there now as well as we are here, but our consciousness has pointed out this particular window of the lighthouse. So we are not consciously aware of the 360 degree view. We're seeing out this one window pane that we call waking consciousness. And we are still located in, uh, in all of those other directions. And it's a matter of being able to hold our position and expand our awareness, right? Like, I can talk to you and scratch my head at the same time. I can drink a cup of coffee and talk to you and scratch my head. Mm -hmm. So it's being able to multitask interdimensionally. It's not as hard as it seems because we do it all the time. It's, it's actually being able to open our awareness so that we can quiet our mind enough to receive what's already there. 
it's it's already there. We're, we're also living in the dreaming world right now. We're also quite alive in the realm of the dead right now. We're probably also shadows in the visitor's world right now. However, we don't quiet ourselves enough to experience the experience of it. It doesn't mean we're not there. We are there. I really think that's what consciousness is. I think that we are, again, it, you know, we could go, uh, I would prefer to go three-dimensional and do a sphere, but we're going to do 360 degrees for simplicity's sake, that what we are as beings is every single one of those 360 degrees. However, we see out of a very narrow bandwidth, and we call that reality, and we call everything else not reality, and it's a mistake. Love that. You've been so generous with your time. It's been so cool talking to you. This conversation is the hokey pokey. And is there anything you'd like to make sure we know about your upcoming work? Anything we want to be sure to check out? Well, I am going to do, I, 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 every week uh, on Wednesdays and Saturdays, I do a live meditation. I put it up on my Witch School page on Facebook, and then I copy it to my um, Stress Wizard Coaching, my business page and my regular feed. So I am doing that, and I'm going to be teaching a class pretty soon. Uh, it'll be coming up probably at the end of the month. And so that's going to be a class about uh, transformation in difficult times, like how to stay grounded and focused in the midst of change and chaos. And so it'll be a, a, a class that will help people do two things, develop their intuitive skills and, em, and embrace a new way of relating to other human beings. So that's what I have coming up. And um, uh, yeah, and, and the other person I would say, you know, uh, Robert Moss, uh, his books, his, you know, the dream, the dream books that he puts out are absolutely wonderful. And that's who I took my dream teacher training with is Robert Moss. And of course, Whitley, you know, we're very good friends and we have a very close connection. So, you know, those are other people that are, you know, responsible for some of my growth and development. For more information on Raven Dana, check the show notes. The year was 1993. The location, Chicago. About seven in the morning, Lupe Fiasco, then aged 11, was asleep in his room with his cousin. The future star awoke to find a blue light enveloping the room, an electrical current paralyzing his body. He tried desperately to move, to call out for his cousin to wake up, but he was frozen. When the electricity finally stopped, Fiasco clearly saw a black disc descend near his house. Moments later, it shot off into the sky. Fiasco feels that a scar on the bottom of his ankle can be attributed to this experience, implying more may have occurred than he consciously recalls. To this day, Fiasco describes the event as an otherworldly experience. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, on creativity, spirituality, and non-ordinary experience. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, or check the show notes for a link. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, consider becoming a patron 
Patrons have access to scores of exclusive offerings, including TV, film, and music works. I release everything to patrons first, and often it never sees the light of day anywhere else. I use your money to commit and fight crime. Click on the Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you.